District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Last week, the Supreme Court handed a unanimous 9-0 decision reprimanding the EPA for having too much authority in deciding what is a navigable water or not. A very groundbreaking decision to see all justices like that. Naturally, the reaction to the Supreme Court ruling has triggered a lot of preservationists, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. And we've seen the responses and reactions saying that all wetlands are going to be imperiled. Is that the case? Are critics correct? That isn't really the case, according to today's guest. I have Jonathan Wood returning to the podcast today to discuss what this decision entails. So Jonathan, if you don't know, is Vice President of Law and Policy at PERC, the Property and Environment Research Center. We've had Jonathan and other colleagues of his on the program. Their group focuses very extensively on WOTUS. They liked the decision. And I think Jonathan can articulate why the Sacketts filed a suit against the EPA. He talks about their nearly two decades long battle. What and how far reaching WOTUS rules should be. We compare the Obama versus Biden standard. And if the Sacketts have to anticipate more abuse by the EPA, We also talk about whether or not wetlands will be in jeopardy going forward, if this brings back balance to water rights, things of that sort. So I hope you take great listen to what Jonathan has to say. He breaks down the case very simply for those of us who are not lawyers. And I think you'll have a more firm grasp understanding of why this decision isn't as bad as a lot of preservationists are making out to be. Jonathan, thanks so much for revisiting the podcast to talk about WOTUS rules. A very timely ruling was handed down by the Supreme Court, and you're one of the most articulate uh, commentators on this. You study this very extensively. I'm not sure how close involvement you have with the Sackett case, but I know you're very familiar with WOTUS. So good to have you back on the podcast to talk about this. Thank you for having me. Could you break down for the listeners why the Sackett family had sued the EPA and, and what their contention was with waters of the United States. Sure. So the case concerns the Clean Water Act, um, which applies to all, quote, navigable waters. Uh, and Congress defined that phrase unhelpfully to include, quote, all waters of the United States. So for the past 50 years since the act was enacted, no one has been able to figure out what that means Uh, The Environmental Protection Agency and Army Corps of Engineers have tried and repeatedly been struck down. Landowners have been uh, pounding their heads against the wall, trying to figure out whether their land is regulated. And it's essentially been a huge mess and engine for litigation. And the Sacketts are an example of the kind of family that's been ensnared by the the Clean Water Act trap. Uh, So they are a couple in Idaho that about 20 years ago purchased a lot near Priest Lake, Um, in the middle of a residential subdivision with a plan to build their dream home on the property. And to prepare the lot for uh, construction, they initially put down gravel to provide a a foundation for it. And when their crew was out doing that, 
a person from the Environmental Protection Agency showed up and ordered them to stop, uh, claiming they were violating the Clean Water Act. The agency eventually followed up with a letter to the Sacketts, accusing them of dumping pollution into a um, wetland on the property, which, according to EPA, was a water in the United States because it was across the street from another wetland. That wetland was next to a man-made ditch. That ditch flowed into a stream. That stream flowed into Priest Lake, and Priest Lake connected to an Avril River, um, and it and the Sackets were were completely caught by surprise. Like they were building just like all of their neighbors had. They had they had no reason to think that the federal government would have any interest in their little lot um, in in this residential subdivision, or that it would consider it to be a navigable water. It's not the kind of place anyone would think of as a uh, as a, a area of federal jurisdiction or navigable water, or even a water um, for that matter. So the, the couple disagreed with the EPA and objected to uh, this letter accusing them of violating the act. And they especially objected to the threats to impose $70,000 per day in fines if the couple did not remove the fill material and basically create a wetland on their property. Um, to give your listeners a sense, $75,000 a day uh, grows at the rate of about a million dollars a month. Um, so in the past nearly 20 years, about 16 years, I think now, uh, that they've been fighting, those potential fines have gotten incomprehensibly large. Um, the reason why they've been in this 16-year battle with the agency, that first, the agency asserted that um, no landowner could challenge EPA's assertion of authority. They basically had to wait until those potential fines accrued, and either the landowner had no choice but to, to give up and do whatever the agency said, or wait for the agency to sue it for to collect those fines and you know risk permanent financial ruin to test whether the agency was right in asserting authority. Um, that issue eventually went up to the Supreme Court, and the court unanimously rejected the agency's position and sided with the Sackets. And that'll be a theme um, in this discussion of the the disconnect between what EPA thinks it can get away with and what the court unanimously um, rejects. Uh, so took a couple of years and the Sackets finally got their chance to at least litigate whether their land was a federally regulated water. Um, unfortunately, the trial court, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, deferred to the agency's assertion, as, as lower courts often do. And so essentially rubber stamped the, the agency's explanation that, again, because there was a there was an alleged wetland on the property, which was across the street from a wetland, which was next to a ditch, like this long stream of potential connections. Um, that that was enough to to potentially criminally prosecute landowners uh, for violating the act. Last year, the Supreme Court agreed to um, finally hear the case again and decide what waters of the United States means and whether it covers the Sackett's property. Um, I work with the Property Environment Research Center, a conservation think tank based in Bozeman. We filed an amicus brief in the case arguing that um, this approach to basing jurisdiction on these long, complex chain of um, aquatic connections doesn't really make sense and actually undermines conservation. So we were we were supporting the Sackets. Um, and last week, the Supreme Court once again ruled unanimously uh, for the Sackets and rejected these, this sort of complex and extremely vague standard for determining what wetlands are regulated. 
and then split amongst themselves on how far to go beyond that to limit um, the agency's authority. Um, but again, it was a unanimous rejection of the idea that federal authority reaches essentially any place where water falls, pools, or moves. So it looks like by all appearances, SCOTUS rejected the significant nexus parameter, if I'm understanding it correctly. Some Democrats and preservationists said that it wasn't a unanimous decision. Um, And can you explain for those of us who are not lawyers that uh, some of the other opinions or supplemental kind of opinions from the justices, I think Kavanaugh and a couple others, uh, said something else about this. Could you explain what that was, why some are saying it wasn't a unanimous decision? Absolutely. Um, So I I suppose the place to start would be that if you're when when you see coverage that says it wasn't unanimous, that is simply wrong. Um, We can we can talk about the differences. We will talk about the differences between the opinions, and that can be important. But on the the broad question of what the Clean Water Act means, the court was in total agreement. Um, And that's a really important thing. Um, So to back up a little bit prior to I, I mentioned at the beginning that EPA has been struggling now for 50 years to find some interpretation of waters of the United States that could survive judicial scrutiny. It's so far been failing. Uh, the version that they followed prior to the Sackets was uh, the significant nexus test that you mentioned. And to give your listeners a sense of just how complex and difficult to apply that test could be, that it's generally articulated as a wetland is subject to federal regulation if it alone or in combination with similarly situated wetlands in the region um, has a significant impact on the biological, chemical, or other qualities of a downstream navigable water. Every single one of those words I just said is ambiguous or vague. Um, And so there really was no way for the average landowner to have any idea uh, whether they were subject to the Clean Water Act, needed a federal permit, um, or, or otherwise. And likewise, there was real difficulty for EPA to apply that standard on the ground in actual um, cases. Uh, generally, the agency basically used the ambiguity to its advantage and would assert authority broadly. But then when it came time in litigation to actually prove up its case, it would often lose because who knows what any of those terms mean. And, and the kinds of connections EPA was drawing between a piece of private property and a Naval water that might be two or three hundred miles away, where it eventually becomes so complicated, even the judges would throw up their hands. Um, so the court was unanimous in rejecting that significant nexus test, and that really was the whole ballgame. That's what everyone was focused on um, when Sackett was granted in their briefs to the court. That really was the major issue that the court was asked to decide, um, and the court was unanimous in that holding. And that's important because in the prior cases when this issue had gone up to the Supreme Court, there was a sizable minority of the justices that basically supported an unlimited approach to to federal authority. Um, You might see it described um, in like media coverage as essentially all water flows downstream uh, as a a theory for federal jurisdiction, which would cover every wetland, every intermittent stream or headwater channel, any place where water might fall or flow. Um, has some sort of, you know, measurable chemical impact on a downstream water, and therefore would be subject to federal regulation. Previously, the court had expressed some sympathy to that, though never it never commanded a majority. And here, it's, I think it's really important that every single justice rejected that that theory. 
where they disagreed was over wetlands that are near near a lake water a lake river stream or ocean um, so first Alito wrote the opinion for the court he began with what does what is a water for purposes of waters of the United States and he said that ordinarily people interpret waters to mean things that are relatively permanent flowing or, or, or standing waters like a lake river or stream they don't mean things like wetlands you know intermittent streams or desert arroyos that may hold water a year or two a year or a day or two a year but are not what you think of as a permanent existing water feature um, but there's also language in the clean water act that references adjacent wetlands and and wetlands don't necessarily fit that understanding of a water they you know may only hold water for part of the year they may only hold water when it floods that, that sort of thing um but they may also be a really important feature within a, a water. So the way that Alito proposed to resolve that sort of ambiguity was, again, to limit waters of the United States to the sort of permanent or flowing features like a lake, river, stream, but include um, wetlands that physically abut a lake, river, stream. So, you know, in a lot of rivers, there are wetland systems right next to them to absorb um, floodwaters or to maintain um, certain ecosystems, all of those would continue to be covered um, under the majority opinion of the court uh, that, that Alito authored. Where you had disagreement was Justice Kavanaugh and the three Democratic appointees wanted to go beyond that to include also wetlands that were next to a river, lake, or stream, but separated by something like a, a dike, uh, a dune, or like a man-made structure with the idea being that those still play the same sort of role as a wetland that's right next to a river, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to separate out um, or to exclude these features that serve the same purpose or basically in the same place, but just happen to be separated by by like a road or some other feature. Um, and the reason why I say that disagreement is relatively narrow compared to the big question of, of the, signif the vague significant nexus test is if you had said a year ago uh, that um, – what Justice Kavanaugh's opinion would be and told me that it was unanimous, that basically Alito and all the people that joined his opinion instead joined Kavanaugh's and made a unanimous opinion. I don't think the Sackett celebration of their victory would be dampened at all. And the criticism of the court also would not have meaningfully changed. That that, that category of wetlands may be numerous. It may even be important, but it's really not what the conflict was over going into the decision. And that goes to, again, another I would say uh, criticism that is, that has emerged from the ruling. I've often seen the refrain and often the claim from preservationists largely that wetlands are going to be destroyed as a result of this ruling. In your professional opinion, would we see a deterioration and destruction of wetlands despite all the evidence you've laid out saying that uh, they wouldn't be impacted? Why, why do they argue that wetlands will be destroyed? Is there any evidence supporting that whatsoever? Or is that a fear um, just to kind of misunderstand what WOTUS should be, um, how you shouldn't go about the significant nexus test. Could you break that down for us if that, that's sure. a um, Yeah. So the short answer, I think, to be fair, is maybe. Uh, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. But what you've probably seen is this talking point that the decision of the court reduces protection for wetlands by about 50%. So 50% of wetlands that might have been protected are now beyond federal authority. That statistic is based on – it actually has nothing to do with the court's decision. And instead, based on a comparison between the regulation that the Obama administration issued interpreting Waters of the United States or WOTUS 
um, compared to the Trump administration's alternative rule that replaced it. Um, there was some studies sort of analyzing what the two different rules would cover and um, the move from the Obama rule to the Trump rule was basically a 50% reduction. The problem with that comparison is that the Obama interpretation never went into effect. It was immediately uh, deemed unlawful by the courts so that 50% were never actually subject to federal regulation. Um, so, so no wetlands would necessarily lose, lose protection. Um, but the other problem with that approach is that the the opinion that Kavanaugh authored that got the support of the Democrat-appointed justices was essentially the Trump WOTUS rule. So that 50% reduction, even if it were real, would have applied even if the side that, that most of the critics seemed to align with, if, if that, that side of the court had been the majority. There was absolutely no justice who said that the meaning of waters of the United States is as broad as the Obama administration originally proposed. Now, again, that said, the Alito opinion is narrower than the Kavanaugh opinion. And so presumably some wetlands that might have been regulated by under the, the Kavanaugh opinion will not be under the, the majority opinion of the court. And what happens to those is somewhat an open question. Historically, whenever federal authority over wetlands has been reduced, and this has happened several times, like I mentioned, EPA has been trying for 50 years without success to interpret this phrase. It's repeatedly lost in court. And so you've had this gradual reduction in federal authority you know, going back decades. Historically, each time uh, states have stepped up to sort of fill what, fill what they perceive as a gap. So state authority over wetlands would expand. That might not happen. It might happen this time, but it might not. And the reason why is that WOTUS has so politicized the issue of wetlands that some states have actually enacted laws forbidding state regulators from going beyond the minimum they have to under federal law. Uh, so at least in the short term, state regulators will have no choice but to also pare back their efforts. That might change. Like state legislatures can change those laws at any time, but but that would like you know likely take time and you know, depend on the, the local politics. But the real opportunity is for voluntary conservation to step up. Like the inherent problem with this vague and very broad understanding of WOTUS is that because no one had any idea whether their land was going to be regulated and there was all this uncertainty, uh, the rule basically made wetlands a huge liability for landowners that they were incentivized to sort of get rid of now uh, before they get noticed later or you have some sort of problem and, and fight with a federal agency later. Like no one wants to risk um, the potential for a million dollar a month in fines over a feature that may not be providing much value to them. So sort of why risk allowing um, these sort of features to remain on your property if you think you can get away with destroying them? Now that that perverse incentive is reduced and may even have gone away in light of the Supreme Court's decision, but we still need to make wetlands an asset for landowners. Wetlands play a really important role in water quality, habitat for fish and wildlife, including game species that hunters and anglers um, value a ton, um, as well as other environmental values. And so it's really important now that conservation groups, hunting and angling groups, and others that value wetlands step up and say, we're willing to pay for this value that landowners are providing for us. And if they do, and to their credit, lots of organizations are already doing this and have been doing this because right. of because some wetlands were never regulated by the Clean Water Act. 
Um, the reason why the, that the different approach matters is that that makes wetlands an asset to landowners that they are incentivized to conserve, enhance, and perhaps expand. And there is no no type of regulation that could ever create that incentive. The best you can do with a regulation is create fear from landowners that an EPA official will just happen to notice what they're doing and, and investigate them. Um, and so at the end of the day, you'll actually, you could actually get more wetland conservation and protection through these voluntary means than you ever could have um, through this extremely broad and vague federal standard. So this applied to kind of the Obama era standard, and we have the Biden standard that has been articulated and adopted by rule changes. But a federal court actually rebuked um, the Biden administration, and I believe it was in April of this year that uh, 24 states that had sued to block implementation had their wishes respected in essence. So how does this ruling uh, pertaining to the Obama era rule impact the Biden rule, uh, which is blocked right now in almost 50% of the country. So how are, yeah, how, are, the, how is that related? Yeah. So the Biden rule, which relied on that significant nexus stand that we were discussing is dead in the water in light of, of this opinion. Um, you know, there not even the Kavanaugh opinion would be broad enough to encompass what the Biden rule asserted authority over um, so there, I don't see any plausible way that it can be defended at this point. So EPA will either have to apply the test in the opinion as written, or it could propose a regulation to perhaps interpret um, some of the boundaries of it. And there, there are still some ambiguities in the Alito opinion that there could be opportunities for the agency to work out, even though it's, you know, its authority has been significantly limited. So for instance, I mentioned that uh, waters are interpreted to only include um, water features that are relatively permanent or continuously flowing. Well, relatively is a um, somewhat vague term. Like there's some discretion there potentially for EPA to decide like how much of the year water has to be in a feature or how often it might go dry and say a period of an extreme drought or something like that. Um, but there is virtually no chance uh, that EPA could defend the sort of broad assertion of authority um, that is in the current and, and enjoined rule. What is interesting, I saw Majority Leader Schumer was saying it's now in Congress's court to reinstate the significant nexus test or weigh in on this. But I look back in April, similarly, when uh, this decision was handed down for Bo uh, the Biden era rule, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in both the House and the Senate in House Resolution 27 rebuked the president, tried to override um, the rule, but he overrode their veto, which is interesting. Um, does Congress weigh in on this going off of how they voted uh, to clamp down on the Biden rule? Should Congress weigh in here or are they going to are they going to look to the courts to weigh in on this potentially in Congress? Should Congress uh, clarify this even more in the Clean Water Act? Yeah, whether Congress will is a div I mean, currently in the short term, it seems doubtful that a divided Congress is going to have the political appetite for that. Um, but I'm, I'm sure the effort will be tried. Whether Congress should should weigh in, I think, is a perhaps a more important question. The answer is probably yes, because this problem exists entirely due to Congress. That it was a bad decision to make the standard for federal authority the vague phrase waters of the United States. Like the Supreme Court has done its best job to try to interpret that. Um, but even in the opinion, 
um, the justices were very clear that this was a problem of Congress's own making because it sort of never made the choice of what was going to be subject to federal regulation. And that's something you ultimately, it's better off, we're better off if Congress makes those sorts of choices than if courts or federal agencies. Um, so some clarity from Congress, even if it's just to codify a particularly like approach from the past or the, this court's approach um, could be beneficial. That said, Congress may not have a ton of wiggle room um, in how it defines uh, federal authority over wetlands and other waters because uh, Alito's opinion acknowledged that the courts are extremely skeptical of assertions of federal power that would significantly change the bounds of power between federal, the federal government and the states, um, as well as the bounds of power between the federal government and private property owners. And if the Congress were to enact a, a statute that extended the Clean Water Act to you basically adopt the all water flows downhill approach, the maximum possible reach of a, a Clean Water Act statute, it wouldn't be surprising if the court were to say that were unconstitutional based on some of the analysis in this opinion. I think that's a great breakdown of WOTUS uh, from the judicial side, legislative side, and um, obviously kind of full scope view into the fact that the president can, cannot be exceeding uh, congressional powers and ignoring uh, what the Supreme Court and judicial branch are saying. So I appreciate the clarification on that, because for those of us who are not lawyers, it's very convoluted to see all this. And you're like, what does this mean? And how do we break it down simply? And I thought you articulated it very well, Jonathan. What else is perk up to that my listeners should be aware of? Because I know you guys have fought very much to 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 see changes to WOTUS or clarifications to WOTUS happen. Uh, what else are you guys working on currently? Yeah, so I think in light of Sackett, there will be a lot of work to figure out how we, you know, make wetlands an asset to more landowners. I mentioned there are already ongoing efforts for some types of remote wetlands, but that will need to expand. And Perks research has often looked at what sort of tools can be developed or incentives created to, to provide that kind of um, incentive-based and market-based conservation. We're also really active in um, Endangered Species Act uh, reform. This is the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. And PERC has long criticized, we see as a sort of um, unintentional error in the, the way the law is written and applied, where we essentially make wildlife, endangered and threatened wildlife a liability for landowners um, and create perverse incentives that encourage landowners to preemptively destroy habitat when what we should be doing is rewarding landowners for their role in conserving and recovering species. So later this summer, we'll be coming out with a report with um, probably a dozen or more reform ideas that are you know, designed to be not extreme or radical, but would make the sort of tweaks that are politically and administratively feasible while also shifting the statute from one that punishes landowners who conserve endangered species in their habitat instead into one that rewards landowners for their critical role in keeping these species around. Perk does a great job of market environmentalism, property rights. I love having you guys on the show, and I thought this was a really great discussion. I learned even more than I already know about WOTUS. I'll defer everyone to social media, uh, links to connect you with, but um, if people want to reach out to you guys, they should just go to the website, social media, those avenues. Yeah, absolutely. The website's perk.org, P-E-R-C. Uh, and we're on Instagram, Twitter, and all the other social media accounts that I don't totally understand. Wonderful. 
thank you again for joining. And I will defer everyone to, to follow Perk. They do, like I said, great stuff. We love having you on, Jonathan. I've had other colleagues of yours on too, Hannah Downey. And uh, you guys are on the cutting edge of uh, true conservation too. So I like to bring on allies to discuss this more. Appreciate your comments. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.